0: From KQED.
1: You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Robert P. Jones says it's time for white Christians to reckon with white supremacy. The founder and CEO of the Public Religion Research Institute, which looks at the intersection of religion, culture, and politics, says that white Christian churches, quote, have not just been complacent or complicit in failing to address racism. Rather, as the dominant cultural power in the U.S., they have been responsible for constructing and sustaining a project to protect white supremacy. Jones' new book is White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. Robert P. Jones, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
1: I mean, that assertion that, that white Christian churches have been responsible for constructing and sustaining a project to protect white supremacy, it's one of several bold conclusions you make in your book. First, could you start by defining what you mean by white supremacy?
2: Yeah, no, I think this is really important. You know, I, I think, um, you know, even if you'd asked me 10 years ago, uh, you know, to think about white supremacy before I really started working on on the book, you know i would think of people in sheets burning crosses in people's lawns uh, you know the kind of extremist uh, kkk elements um but you know it, it's much broader than that it really is um if we just flip the words around from white supremacy to the supremacy of whites it is this uh conviction and belief um that whites are the superior race and that uh, and in christian parlance that that whites were divinely uh created this way and divinely intended uh, to be a, a superior race, to be over African-Americans, to be over indigenous people, uh, and and that this was God's design for the civilization of the world. I mean, this is very deep and very old um, in American Christianity. Um, I, I think today many Christians don't think about that, but, you know, the very ideas of manifest destiny uh, that justified kind of taking land from uh, Native Americans and, and black and brown peoples all over the world is a deeply Christian Uh, document goes back to the uh, 1493 and the doctrine of discovery. Um, And and so this has been with us. And I I think one of the way to think about it even more recently is that, you know, if you mention church and civil rights, what people very immediately think of are uh, African-American churches that were the hubs of organizing for civil rights. But what very few people think of is the role that white Christian churches uh, played very clearly um, in resisting civil rights and uh, upholding uh, segregation, um, and and wrapping this all, um, you know, uh, into their Christian theology and offering a public Christian justification.
1: And you grew up a Southern Baptist, I mean, and you went to church a lot, right?
2: <laughs> I did, um, you know, so I, I think this is the other thing, too, that, you know, even, so this book is, you know, part memoir, um, and I also have on my social scientist hat uh, here, and then uh, part his, history, uh, but, you know, on the personal side, I mean, I I think this is a testimony to how powerful um, this, this ability, I think, of, of white Christianity to render uh, claims of systemic injustice and systemic racism invisible um, are. That So yes, I grew up Southern Baptist, uh, mostly in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, I was that kid who was, at, I was at church five days a week, all the, even as an adolescent. I mean, I was, I was very active in the youth group, um, I went to a Southern Baptist college. Um, I have a Master of Divinity degree from a Southern Baptist uh, uh, theological seminary, um, and and yet it wasn't until I was actually in seminary in my twenties that I even learned about the 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 origin story of my own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention. And j- just in brief, it, it you know it, it was shocking to me to find out um, that uh, that the denomination which I grew up. Was started um, as with you know the declaration that owning other human beings uh, was compatible with the gospel, um, at, with the Christian gospel as as we understood it, uh, and in fact the rift between northern and southern that's where the name comes from. Southern Baptist Convention uh, was that the Baptist churches in the south uh, got into a disagreement with the Baptist churches in the north, um, specifically over whether clergy and, and missionaries could own uh, slaves and. Uh, and, and when the Northern Baptist uh, balked and said, no, we don't think that's an that's, uh, a, a authentic way to understand our Christian faith, uh, the Southern churches uh, kind of took their, took their toys and went home and formed their own convention in 1845. And, you know, this also is worth noting. This did not turn out to be some fringe movement. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention went on by the middle of the 20th century. So by 100 years later, it was the largest expression. Of white christianity in the country it was the largest protestant denomination in the country
1: and you learned about these racist roots you say when you were in seminary why do you think it took that long to understand the roots of the founding of of the southern baptist denomination
2: well you know i i, I think it it's self-interest and self-protection um and you know i, I write in the book that i, I think one of the, the biggest challenges uh, ha- have been the sense of Needing a, a completely innocent view of our history and a kind of pure a purity uh, approach to our history um, and, and and just it's been uh, I think wrapped up with self-interest. I mean, even as I was growing up in the 1970s um, You know, it, it sparked for, I write about this in the book, you know it, it, There was this event where just a friend of ours uh, who was african-american showed up uh, for a sunday morning uh, church service um, and, and that required uh, and, and spurred an emergency deacons meeting to figure out what we were going, what the church was going to do if, if our African-American friend decided he wanted to join the church or his family decided he wanted to join the church because it had an all whites policy, um, you know, um, in, in place. So, you know, this was not that far back there. So there's self-interest, right, um, in, in hiding this history and kind of portraying a kind of rosier view of, of our history, um, because I, I think and, and I think part of it is admitting this. Um, leads one into accountability and responsibility. And, and that's, that's a, a, tough, a tough road uh, to go. And so I think to avoid responsibility, to avoid accountability, the history was just um, very, very powerfully and systematically repressed.
1: Well, this listener writes, and I should invite our listeners to join the conversation. You can reach us online at KQED Forum on Twitter and Facebook or email us at forum at kqed.org. If you want to call in the number, 866 733 6786. Well, this listener writes, this is not a new phenomenon. Looking at Frederick Douglass's autobiography, he addresses this very issue. He calls out the church itself, not the individual. The individuals use biblical rhetoric to justify their actions. It's an interesting point and also reminds me of what you were writing about in terms of the role that the message of individuality plays in the church. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I think I learned so much from reading like these contemporary accounts of Frederick Douglass, of Martin Luther King, of James Baldwin, and others who were looking at the white Christian church um, and seeing this deep hypocrisy, right, of pre- preaching Christian virtues on the one hand. I mean, Douglass excoriates uh, white Christianity in his first autobiography and in fact, devotes an entire appendix, um, you know, uh, to talking about it and and comes to this kind of shocking, uh, really heartbreaking conclusion, you know, where he says, uh, look, apart from uh, being enslaved uh, the worst calamity I can imagine uh, befalling myself is being enslaved to a Christian master because he, he and others uh, actually experienced Christian slave masters being more cruel uh, than those than those who were not, you know, King, uh, in letter from Birmingham Jail, this kind of heartbreaking, uh, you know, heart wrenching uh, look at, at even well meaning whites, you know, where he says, you know, who are these people who sit silently behind uh, their anesthetizing uh, stained glass windows, you know, that that that, uh, and I, I think it is, it, that's a good term for it. That I think the role that I think white Christian theology has played is it is really narrowed religiosity to be about um, a kind of hyper individualistic um, understanding of an individual's relationship with God through Jesus. So this personal relationship with Jesus, which is a term, you know, I would hear every Sunday, um, every sermon, uh, you would hear this this term. But that by itself, um, what it what it basically does, is it, it makes the beginning and the end of religion about a kind of interior, individualistic way of, of thinking about uh, what being properly Christian means. And, and then by definition, it screens out um, and puts moral blinders on really uh, for anything around systemic injustice and systemic racism uh, or inequalities in society become uh, something other than mm-hmm. uh, the proper realm of religion. So I, I think it is, it is really constrained, anesthetized, as it, to use King's metaphor, um, it has had a dulling effect or a blinding effect on white Christian consciences when it comes to, particularly of issues of of racial equality in the country.
1: Is this how, in your research for the um, Public Religion Research Institute, when you survey white Christians, that you find that many of them say that they have warm feelings towards people of other races, toward African-Americans, but then at the same time seem to support racist uh, policies or views and attitudes? Uh, Could you talk about that research and what how you feel like this is manifesting in terms of some contemporary or recent issues.
2: Yeah, right. So uh, yeah, in the book, I mean, I, I take some pains to really look at contemporary public opinion data, and that's kind of the social scientist hat that I wear, you know, day in and day out as the head of uh, PRRI. Um, and it is remarkable uh, that you see on the one hand, if you ask about kind of personal views, uh, as you note, um, like warm feeling, do you have warm feelings toward African-Americans? Do you white And you ask white Christians this, Uh, this question, they score extraordinarily high, in fact, higher than the general population um, on a question like that, saying they have warm views toward African-Americans. But if you shift to more systemic, uh, questions about systemic racism, you see a very different picture. So um, in in the book, I use about uh, 15 different questions that get at uh, systemic uh, uh, racism, such as uh, the Confederate monuments or Confederate flags, uh, something right out of the headlines today, um, the killing of African-American men Uh, by police, or differential treatment of African-Americans in the criminal justice system, uh, the differential economic mobility of African-Americans due to past discrimination, those kinds of questions. And what you find there is that, in fact, if you compare white Christians and whites who are uh, religiously unaffiliated, you see this very consistent gap. And that is, uh, on those questions, you see white Christians... Uh, holding, uh, scoring much higher on this. uh, I developed this thing called the racism index out of those questions. They score much higher on that um, index than whites who are religiously unaffiliated. Uh, To be specific, um, uh, and and this is true not just of white evangelicals in the South, but it's true of white mainline Protestants who are more populous in the Midwest and white Catholics who are more populous um, in the Northeast. So white evangelicals, for example, score eight out of 10 On this racism index, Uh, but white white uh, mainliners and white uh, Catholics are not far behind, scoring seven out of ten. And then you compare that to whites who are religiously unaffiliated, who only score four out of ten. So it it is the kind of Christian identity piece that is really separating uh, whites and really blinding them, I think, to um, uh, and and leading them to really deny uh, the existence of a systemic racism in the
1: country. Mm, So as evidenced in in statements that scored high with. You know, white Christians that that they believe the killings of black people by police are anomalous, right? Sort of like the bad apple argument. It sounded like, and also their views on the Confederate flag more as like a historic symbol as opposed to a racist one.
2: Yeah, that's right. You know, I think this this one is really helps illustrate it. Um, so, on the question of the killing of African American men by police, um, we, we have a question that asks whether these are isolated incidents or whether they are part of a pattern of how police treat African-Americans. And uh, again, white Christians of, of all kinds are um, twice as likely as whites who are religiously unaffiliated to say that these are isolated incidents, exactly the kind of bad apple argument. While, uh, uh, and, and so while overwhelming majority of whites who are religiously unaffiliated say, these are part of a pattern of how police treat African-Americans. And that of course is the uh, overwhelming view of African-Americans themselves.
1: And it's so interesting, too, because you're you're drawing the difference as being whites who are religiously affiliated and those who are not. So that has led you to conclude that really religion is the determining factor.
2: That's right. And, and I, I worked really hard to kind of break that thesis. I mean, I was, you know, worked with a hypothesis and then constructed a number of statistical models uh, to try to falsify it, you know, to try to falsify Falsify this connection between holding more racist views and identifying as as a white Christian. Um, so you know, I check for things like um, it, well, maybe it's just about partisanship. So are white Christians more likely to be Republican? Uh, maybe it's about uh, being more likely to be live in a rural area or more likely to live in the South. Uh, education levels, gender, uh, you name it. I put in everything I could think of that might explain this, and even with controls in the models. Uh, for these other alternative explanations, this independent relationship between holding more racist views and identifying as white and Christian held up. And and the other one I think that, that um, was also um, maybe a little surprising to me um, is the role of church attendance, because I think one other objection might be, well, maybe these are just Christians in name only, right? That they, they, they aren't members of churches or they haven't been formed in discipleship or they're not listening to sermons and not going to Sunday school. Uh, But when I even when I check for church attendance levels, it turns out that church attendance on the whole among white Christians makes no difference. Um, It doesn't affect. uh, So in other words, this relationship uh, is just as strong among um, uh, high church attenders as low. And in fact, if you look among white evangelicals, the group that I grew up um, in, uh, the relationship between holding more racist value, uh, more racist um, attitudes and identifying as a white evangelical is actually stronger among those who attend more frequently uh, rather than less. So in other words, um, you know, it, it, uh, among white evangelicals, attending church more frequently actually enhances the likelihood that they're going to hold uh, more racist attitudes.
1: Wow. Well, let me go to listeners. Susan, join us. Hi, Susan. Hi. Um, I had a very different experience, and I didn't
0: realize That it was so different until, like you, I approached my mid 20s. I was raised in Durham, North Carolina, by a very liberal and progressive uh, minister father who was. Uh, connected with the United Church of Christ. And for some reason, all our friends were also liberal. And he and my mother were very active with the Civil Rights Movement and were also active with the Anti-Vietnam War Movement. And I thought that that was a typical experience. And then when I went to college, I discovered a whole new version of Christianity. Um, Some of them were Southern Baptists. And All of a sudden, the hypocrisy of that kind of Christianity was exposed to me, even though my father had had experiences with um, parishioners who were against having African Americans attend the church. But for some reason, in my youth and and naivete, I thought that being a Christian was uh, United Church of Christ version until I was exposed to those who were of a different... uh, elk, shall we say? So, um, well, I lived in a life of um of joy, and you you were <laughs> living a life of um I don't
1: know a a different exposure. Just to share well, Susan, thank you for sharing that. And I mean it 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 reflects a lot of what you're talking about, Robert P. Jones, in terms of this this realization and 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 realizing it really quite late. I mean, Neil tweets, as a white Christian who grew up in the South, I found this book eye-opening, moving, and ultimately devastating. It it sounds like when you say that people who—that we need to reckon with with racism in American Christianity, that you do know that it's going to be a very difficult journey because it is deeply personal. It really does feel like it's speaking to you and what you maybe failed to see.
2: No, that's right. I mean, the other thing to say is that, um, you know, the, the caller there, I mean, it's certainly worth saying there were Christians who stood up, um, but it, it is, um, you know, worth noting too that that, is, that was not the, um, the response of the vast majority of white Christians, uh, uh, you know, to, for example, to the civil rights, um, you know, movement. Um, and, and I think this current moment is providing a window of opportunity, though, to reconsider, you know, I, I, it certainly broke Martin Luther King's heart, right? That uh, that that white Christian churches, uh, you know, didn't stood up, didn't stand up. Uh, and actually, the title of the book, um, "White Too Long," actually comes from James Baldwin, mm-hmm. um, who also, I think, had great hopes, as King did, uh, that whites of goodwill and white Christians in particular would find resources in their tradition to finally stand up. Um, and after the assassination of King, um, he is very deeply disturbed, you know, that that wasn't the response of most of most white Christians. And we can in the current public opinion today shows that it's still uh, the case.
1: Well, I'd love to talk more about that after the break in terms of confronting this and efforts that you have seen and are seeing to do this. We're talking with Robert P. Jones about his book, White Too Long. the, And we're also talking with you, our listeners, 866-733-6786 is the number to call, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. we're talking with author Robert P Jones about his new book White Too Long The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. He's also CEO and founder of Public Religion Research Institute. Also, we're talking with you our listeners. Give us a call 866-733-6786 if you have questions for Robert Jones 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. This listener writes, as an African-American Christian in this country, it baffles me why our white Christian brothers and sisters don't speak up about the injustices black people face. It seems the only lives that they care about are those babies being aborted, not about innocent black lives being murdered by police. Um, Just before the break, Robert P. Jones, you were talking about efforts that the church has made. And I mean, there have been sort of documented instances of apologizing um, for supporting racist policies um, and also you know trying to work with other churches and churches with denominations that are largely african-american i mean can you talk about efforts that you think are truly meaningful and substantive
2: sure um, you know I, I i think that certainly there have been i think in and, and recently um Uh, I would say that uh, I haven't seen a lot that I would say have a lot of substance until like the last five years in in our recent history. And I think the events of, uh, for example, um, you know, Dylan Roof murdering uh, nine African-American worshipers um, in Charleston uh, and in Charlottesville, white supremacists demonstrating in Charlottesville, chanting uh, neo-Nazi slogans while defending a statue of Robert E. Lee. I think these have woken up. Uh, many uh, white churches who are really trying, I think, to do something different that isn't just about paying lip service. Um, So in in the book, I I write about um, two uh, churches in in Macon, Georgia, which is uh, where both of my parents are from. And in fact, my family goes back six generations um, in in middle Georgia, right around Macon. Um, And these two churches, um, uh, one is predominantly white, one is predominantly black. About seven years ago, um, they decided to uh, kind of join in, in a kind of covenanted relationship. Now, what's unique about this, this, these uh, two churches, they used to be the same church. They were for, founded in 1825, and the original arrangement was that the predominantly white church uh, were slave owners and the predominantly African-American church were enslaved um, African-Americans. Um, and uh, this, uh, set, this situation continued until after the Civil War. Uh, when uh, when African-American church got its independence. And then they sat there for 150 years really with no relationship between the two of them uh, until just seven years ago. And what has happened is that they have really begun to form community. Uh, but it has involved some really tough truth telling, particularly among uh, the, the white Christian church. Uh, but I think one of the things that has done is it has moved them away from this kind of artificial rosy version of their history to a more honest um, history, and and pointed them, I think, to places where, uh, you know, they not only need to apologize and lament the past, but again, to, to do the work of repair. And I think that is really the key um, for, for white Christian churches in particular, um, to focus really on the, the job of repair uh, and justice, uh, and not to reach too quickly for this, uh, what I think can often be uh, um, seductive, this quick reconciliation right but um one of the the white pastor of the church there told me he said look we stopped talking about reconciliation we are just talking about justice and repair and we believe and we have faith that reconciliation will come um, as an outgrowth of that work
1: well let me go to listener susan in palo alto hi susan
3: uh, i grew up in the lds church in salt lake city and when i was 17 in about 1962 I went to Brigham Young University to hear uh, one of the Twelve Apostles of the Church give a a talk. And he told a story uh, about the pre-existence before we got here to Earth and about how God gave certain people a black skin as a punishment. And I was so—it's a long, drawn-out story, which we don't have time to go into— but I was so appalled by this story— so I went home, and I said, Mother, surely you don't believe this trash. And she said, Darling, it's truth. And I said to her, I am never stepping foot in that church again. And I walked away before she slugged me. And, um, <laughs> and I had my name taken off the records of the church three years later and, mm. and never returned. Uh, but it, it was such an appalling story. And um so I wanted to offer that.
1: Yeah, thanks, Susan, for sharing that story. Uh, let me bring our next listener, Krista from San Francisco, in now. Hi, Krista.
0: Hi, um, so my mother was adopted from South Korea following the Korean War um, by white evangelical Christians. And I was wondering if the findings about racism apply in the church apply to, um, just blacks, or is it to Asians as well? Um, was Christa, is there transracial adoption to blacks among evangelicals?
1: Krista, thank you. Robert P. Jones.
0: Yeah, uh, well,
2: I'll take the second one uh, first. I mean, it does seem there's something very particular about, um, and it's not surprising, really, given our history, um, that 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 these attitudes are particularly anti-black, um, right? Um, that I, I think, in particular. Um, uh, that that was the sort of black-white divide um, was was the kind of most dominant uh, driver of the kind of theological development uh, here, and and this ties actually to the other uh, caller's uh, question. Uh, you know, uh, I think maybe to many who hear that story, it sounds a little outrageous and just outright racist, but it it's worth noting, and it, and it is, but it's worth noting that this there were two biblical stories uh, uh, that were very commonly evoked. One of them is uh, uh the, the the mark of Cain, the other one is the curse of ham. they both essentially are out of the Old Testament and they but they both essentially amount to the same thing, and that is that the origin story uh, that white Christian clergy and theologians developed about the beginnings of our kind of racial uh, identities were that um African Americans uh, and and people with darker skin were literally marked and as a punishment for an original criminal act um in in the Bible. Uh, for example, one I take up in, in the book is you know Cain and Abel. Um, Cain kills his brother Abel um, and, is, and is marked, and uh, in, in the, the biblical text says he's marked by God uh, as punishment. It doesn't actually say anything about race or skin color, uh, but it was interpreted that way uh, by white Christians. But what that means, right, is that the origin story of whites is Adam and Eve, and the origin story of African Americans in this view was literally a criminal act, right? So it, it from the beginning, uh, a kind of moral debasement. Um, and, and that was a very common uh, view among white Christians across the board, Catholic, Protestant, LDS Church, uh, you name it. I mean, this was, this was deeply, deeply in the DNA of white Christian theology.
1: Well, this listener writes, besides racism, another controversial issue in the church is immigration. The gospel would seem to advocate for accepting immigrants and caring for them, but that is the opposite of the Republican agenda on immigration. The Catholic church in the U.S. in particular is sustained by immigrants and communities of color. So how is white supremacy factoring in or is that helping steer away from it?
2: Yeah, uh, well, immigration's is kind of a complex issue as well. Um, uh, but what we, what we basically see, I think the best way of understanding this is that where some of the fear and I think the vitriol in our in our politics is is around American identity. I mean, I think this more than any single policy, what we're seeing fight, being fought out between the two political parties um, is the fundamental question of who are we as a country? Like who counts as an authentic, real American? Like These are the questions. Uh, who's in, who's out, who belongs, who doesn't? These are the questions um, that we're really fighting over at the deepest, deepest level. And the reason why we're fighting at this is because, uh, again, American Christianity has put forward this idea um, uh, that to, to be white and Protestant Christian really um, is the normative idea of what it means to be American. I mean, none other than you know, what many see to be a, a kind of progressive president like FDR uh, uh, infamously said um, that this country is a Protestant country. And everyone else is here by sufferance and he and by protestant he meant white um and, and protestant um and the kkk you know was uh, set up to defend a white anglo-saxon protestant christian version of the country that's why they were anti-catholic and anti-jewish it was protecting this kind of white protestant america uh now th- the challenge is that we have crossed this threshold demographically speaking where we are no longer um a white protestant or even a white christian country demographically speaking so but but that's been a recent shift. So in, in 2008, the country was 54% white and Christian, if you put all white Christians together when Barack Obama was first running for president. But today that number is 44. Um, and it, it was 47 in 2016, and it's 44% uh, today. So as we cross this milestone from being demographically speaking a majority white Christian country to one that is no longer majority white Christian country, I think that's at least part of what has set off uh, what can only be called a kind of identity crisis, um, particularly among many white Christians who are so used to seeing themselves as the dominant culture and political force in America and are having to face the fact that that's no longer true.
1: And it sounds like that's something that you also think plays a role in evangelicals and white Christians actually moving toward Trump, even though in terms of sort of his history and values, um, he didn't align
2: yeah i think absolutely i mean it it really is a utilitarian relationship i mean i've described it as you know these are not values voters as they describe themselves you know a couple of election cycles ago but really the best way to describe i think conservative white christians uh, now is their nostalgia voters they're being driven i think by the 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 effort to preserve this mythical uh kind of white christian america um, that, that is really passing you know, from the scene. I mean, it never really existed in the way that um, I think it did in many white Christians' minds, but now even demographically speaking, um, it's certainly not there. And just one kind of polling number to kind of undergird this here is um, one of the most predictive questions we asked at PRRI in the 2016 election was a question about how American culture and way of life has changed since the 1950s. Right. So that the 1950s is Brown v. Board of Education and desegregation really um, kicks off in the 50s. And when we ask that question, um, we find that the two political parties are mirror images of each other. Two thirds of Republicans say things have changed for the worst since the 1950s. Two thirds of Democrats say things have changed for the better. And all white Christian groups are on the side of saying things have changed for the worst. And white evangelicals in particular are out there. Three quarters of white evangelical Christians say um, that things have changed for the worse since the 1950s. And it matches really that. That question is highly correlated with vote choice. Uh, So we all know that white evangelicals, 81 percent of them voted for Trump in 2016. What I think is often forgotten is the other white Christian groups. White Catholics voted nearly two thirds for Trump uh, in 2016 and white mainline Protestants, even who are often seen as the more liberal end of white protestant world uh, voted uh 57 uh for trump and i think animated largely by trump's message that the make america great again message is that last word that has the nostalgia and, and his overt promise that he was going to restore power uh to white christian churches should he be elected
1: let me go to pete in pacifica hi pete
3: guest for bringing up this subject. Um, It's very common right now to see white Christians who do not believe themselves to be racist, to reject these people you're talking about by saying they're not real Christians. Now, what do you say to these people who are, in your view, a, a minority of Christians in the first place? What do you say to them when they're effectively rejecting the very basis of your hypothesis and your findings? Pete, thanks. Yeah, you know, I, I think,
2: I mean, we're back to the kind of very first quote uh, that we began the, the show with. And I, I think it's really important um, that we that we face the reality of this history. Um, and I think it really won't do uh, to say, oh, well, this is not real Christianity. When it was when, when a kind of commitment to um, really a society that was set up. Uh, to value the lives of white uh, Americans over the lives of non-white Americans. And that has really been uh, all the way up through, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the civil rights movement, for sure. Um, uh, unquestionably how the country is set up and, and white Christians, for the most part, were either fine with it or defended it. Uh, and I think it, it simply won't do to say that's not real Christianity. If we say that, what we're saying is that for most of American history, actual People on the ground who claim to be Christian were not really Christian. Uh, So I think what we really have to do is to to deal with the the fact that, yes, actual real Christianity um, has been built in this country uh, and allowed white supremacy to be built into its DNA. And then the real question for the present present generation of Christians is what are we, uh, and I say that as someone who uh, does identify as white and Christian, what are we going to do? Uh, with that legacy and and what are we what are we going to put in place so we don't hand that down to our children and grandchildren.
1: There's a couple of comments, I think, related to religious cover. Mark writes, it's not just Christianity claiming to know the will of God as an open invitation for all manner—oh, I'm sorry. It's not just Christianity claiming to know the will of God is an open invitation for all manner of hate and violence. Pete tweets, this is consistent with giving up personal responsibility and moral agency for its God's will thinking. Take the example of the woman who exclaimed why she was engaging in risky behavior at a crowded church service, not wearing a mask, saying she was covered in Jesus's Blood. Let me go next to Leanne in San Francisco. Hi, Leanne.
4: Hi. I just wanted to um, add a personal note that actually is about a a transformation where um, my paternal grandmother was deeply religious. She was from Arkansas, and she was in the Church of Christ. And none of her children, nor her grandchildren, went on to become Christians. It was one of the tragedies of her life that she uh, hadn't saved her children. And um, she finally had my cousin, a granddaughter, who married an African-American man from the South who became a preacher and she went from being the only home in our in our family where i heard racist comments my first exposure to white racism was in her home and her christian belief that she somehow african americans were inferior and not to be were dirty she would talk about them as if she washed her money literally washed her money because she told me when I was a child that she washed her money because I did, she didn't know who had touched them, mm. the money, perhaps colored, quote unquote, people had touched them. I had to ask my dad what colored people were. I had never heard the term colored.
1: It sounds like, though, you were saying that she had a transformation. Sorry, Leanne, we just have a, a minute left or so here.
4: So one of my last conversations with her before she passed away was to ask her how she felt about my cousins having married an African-American. And she said, he's a preacher. I'm so proud. And I just love those little grandchildren.
1: Well, Leanne, thanks for sharing that story. I mean, Robert P. Jones, we do just have a minute left. And I just wonder if there are any thoughts you want to leave us with as we have... You know, a lot of questions about what is the work that white Christians need to do, and and others who are pointing out that there has been a lot of faith based community work fighting for social justice.
2: Yeah, I, I think it, it's it's great to end on on a moment of hope. I, I think we're we are at such a moment uh, where we have a window of opportunity because of the ra- racial reckoning that's happening in the country for white Christians really to stand up and I think find the courage to tell the truth, um, to really see uh, this history, uh, to take it seriously. And the other thing I would say is that, you know, uh, one easy way, I think, to sort of open the window um, a bit that we're seeing, I think, some is for white Christians to have enough humility to just say this. Look, if I see African my African-American brothers and sisters in this country in pain and anguish, um, even if I don't get it, um, this is something I should pay attention to. And I think if we'll have the, tr- the courage to, tell, to say this, to tell the truth, uh, in James Baldwin's words, um, we can uh, end the racial nightmare, we can achieve our country and we can change the history of the world.
1: Well, it sounds like a great incentive. Robert P. Jones, thank you for talking with us thank today. You. Robert P. Jones, he's the author of the book, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. Blanca Torres produced today's segment. Thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. I'm Mina Kim, thanks for listening.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.